0: Would you stand with me as we read from God's word? Today's sermon focus will be on 1 Corinthians 16 through 17. But in order to, again, give some context, because that is important, uh, we're going to start in verse 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. According to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than that one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are.
1: Let's go before the Lord once again before we hear his word this morning. Holy Spirit of God, give us ears to hear, we pray. Give me words, your words, to speak in a manner that glorifies your name with clarity, by way of your power, to edify your people, and to bring to life those who are listening who are presently dead in their transgressions and sins. Give them life today, everlasting we pray. Amen. The dominant truth of verses 16 and 17 is that God dwells, not merely among his people, but within his redeemed people, whom he refers to as his temple. His temple. The church is the temple of God. So his, his presence among and within his beloved people is not only a precious gift, but is a primary concern. And with it comes a prime warning. If you'll notice, do not mess with God's temple, his church. Dare to destroy the temple of the living God And God will destroy you. Where his people are, his very presence resides. God is present among us, beloved, right now. You, his people, are present. God is present. Uh, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, he writes, and I quote, Presence... Children, when we talk about presence, we're talking about company, not gifts, okay? Presence. Quote, presence is a delicious word because it points to one of our truly great gifts. Nothing else can take the place of presence. Not gifts, not telephone calls, not pictures, not mementos, nothing. Ask the person who has lost a lifelong mate what they miss the most. The answer is invariably, presence. What makes shared life, games, walks, concerts, outings, and a myriad of other things so pleasurable? Presence. End of quote. I sometimes ask my wife, particularly around football season, (laughs) big football fan that I am, to sit with me and watch a football game. She's not a football fan. And she will say, why? We don't talk. I said, I don't want to talk. She's what makes me feel like a piece of furniture. The point is, I just like your presence. I enjoy my wife's presence. Now and again, a couple games a year, I enjoy her (laughs) presence. It's no surprise that God has made us this way. Amen. Being made um, in the image of Almighty God, um, this is where we find our true joy. We, as God's people, find our true joy in, our happiness in, our prosperity in the presence of the living God in whose image we bear. God's presence and therefore that truth leads Paul to ask the church in Corinth verse 16 do you not know do you not know that you and you is in the plural do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you plural the you's are plural now why he asked that is where we're going this morning As we continue our exposition of 1 Corinthians, and here, chapter 3, we'll get to verses 16 and 17. Paul is addressing a very troubled church. That was our introduction. Ready to go? Let's go. The church of Corinth was a very um, troubled church. And the first problem that Paul tackles in his epistle to them is with regard to division, disharmony, and the factions that have surfaced there in his absence. So Paul begins his letter, if you've been with us, you will probably remember this, by reminding them of who they are because of whose they are. Who they are, chapter 1, verse 2, you are saints called by God, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He's calling to mind, their new fundamental identity. They are in Christ. They're not living like it. They're not thinking like it. Why does he do this? Because clarity about identity helps shape action and attitude. Actions and attitudes that are the product of gratitude. You show me a Christian with a bad attitude, and I'll show you one who lacks proper gratitude. Clarity about identity helps shape action and attitude. To forget or to disregard one's new identity in Christ, you can be sure that sinful pride is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. A principle that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. And bitterness will soon take over. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, look at it. It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the what? The grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many then become defiled. The greatest, contradiction, the greatest contradiction to the surrounding community of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim is disunity among his people. Manifest by those who are always um, strife-ridden, quarrelsome, and angry within the body of Christ. You see, the, the fundamental problem of division within the church of Corinth was that their attention, their devotion was not on Christ and Him crucified. What did Paul say? I came preaching nothing but Christ and Him crucified. The only remedy for disharmony in any church is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The only remedy for disharmony within any heart A reminder of your identity of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Corinthians were way off track. They had had adopted a a partisan spirit. They were full of strife, full of jealousy and contention. Chapter 3, verse 3. Claiming, I belong to Paul. Well, I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas and so on. They were siding up. There was faction. Many factions within the church at Corinth. And Paul said, look, that that is carnal and, and base loyalties of ordinary people who do not have the spirit of God. That's what the world does. They team up. You're supposed to be carrying yourselves as a people who have the spirit of God. That's his argument with regard to these factions. And what a reminder that is for us is we enter into a primary election year. As people attach themselves to certain individuals, seeing them as their, as their only hope and political savior. Amen? Friends, our only hope is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Period. Now, if you look back at chapter 2 and verse 1, yes, we are covering ground we've already covered because Um, This is exposition, and everything has to fit together. So there's a context to everything. That's why we kind of overlap week in and week out. Okay? All right. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, notice, he said, look, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I didn't mesh worldly wisdom with the gospel, no. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then in chapter three, he said, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as fleshy, as infants, as little babies in Christ. So notice Paul makes clear that a mere elapse of time does not guarantee maturity in one's life. I know some folks who've been Christians for 20 or 30 years, and they still are like bitter little babies. Infants. Now, if the Corinthians are to grow up, they must learn not to lionize or demonize their leaders. Lionize their leaders, glorify their leaders, putting these preachers on pedestals and saying, I belong to, or to demonize them and say, it's because of him I'm not growing if he indeed is teaching the truth. Because the problem, remember, wasn't with the preachers in Corinth. It was with the people who said, I'm of, I am of. They were pointing to true spiritual nourishment. True spiritual nourishment is not in the preacher. True spiritual nourishment is the one he proclaims, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the bread of life, living water. We preach Christ. So all that being said, um, Paul reminds them how foolish a partisan spirit is regarding preachers. Because at the end of the day, all they are is plowboys and waterboys. We sow the seed of the word and we water it. That's our job. That's our ministry. It's the ministry of the word. You're the vineyard. We're the farmers. We're the waterboys. That's it. That's all we are, says Paul. Verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, writes the apostle, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Okay, now take note, beloved. Paul did not design the foundation. God designed the foundation. The the, the designer is the foundation himself, the word of God, Jesus Christ. He laid it down, preaching Christ as a missionary everywhere he went. He preached. And then... In verses 11 to 14, he lays out what ought to have been very sobering for these Corinthians, and indeed ought to be very sobering for us as well. There had better be, okay, there had better be some quality control being enforced regarding the building that goes on upon this precious foundation, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And there's two things to be aware of in ministry, writes the Apostle Paul, with regard to all ministers of the gospel. Two things. Number one, don't mess with the foundation. Jesus crucified, raised again, and ascended. That's the foundation. Don't mess with imputed righteousness. The only way to be right with God is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't mess with that. Don't mess with divine propitiation. That the crucified Christ is the only satisfaction for the wrath of God. Don't mess with that. Because that will prove you're not saved. Okay, that's the first thing. Secondly, be sure, preachers, to use good materials as you build upon that precious foundation. That is, your methods, your motives better be lined up with the gospel. They better be compatible with Christ the Lord of glory. Now again, as I've said over the last couple of weeks, the the primary focus here is indeed intended for preachers. That is church leadership and the materials they use building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ alone. That is their methods, their motives, their intentions for ministry. Because on the last day, it will be revealed whether or not the materials they used were consistent with the foundation or not. And we're going to get to that once again. If you look at 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5, it's all part of the same argument. Notice, we read, God is going to make the hidden things of the heart manifest. Okay, that is, God is going to judge you on your ministerial motives, preacher. Some will be revealed as wood, hay, and straw. Other works of ministry will be revealed as, as gold, silver and precious stones. In other words, beloved, some ministers who down here had sizable ministries, it looked like an 18-wheeler-sized ministry, on the day, the last day, it will be opened up and be revealed that it's full of hay and it all goes up in smoke. Total loss. Not of the man, because he did believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, but the ministerial methods and means that he used in getting people in the door will be made manifest on that day, and it's all burned up, while the little country preacher who had a Volkswagen bug-sized ministry was sound in the doctrine and fed God's people his word on that day will be opened up, and it's filled with gold. Gold. So, the materials and the motivations for ministry built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ will be exposed on the day. That's what this text is about. This has nothing to do with the carnal Christian. That's a false doctrine created by man. Amen? I received a mailer this week that my dear assistant Ann handed to me. It was a pastoral invitation. To a seminar, okay, on, the seminar is on, and I quote, this is all directly from the flyer, innovative strategies for churches to thrive in the 21st century. It says this, create a culture that allows people to belong before they believe. Follow these four key design principles to consider for your building that will help you bring people to your campus who are not looking for Jesus, what, what, are we going to trick him into believing? Because on the front of that flyer is the, a, a design of this beautiful um, entry foyer, if you will. And at center is a child's play structure with a slide two stories high. Little chambers to jump around in and balls and to crawl around in and, and all this type of thing. And it says this, we must come to a place where we truly believe there is no us and them. There is just us. Contrary to what Jesus said, that the tares will grow up among the wheat. In England, the BBC reports about the Anglican church. I got this from Al Mohler. Having a glorious, quote, helter-skelter slide that is as high as the church cathedral. The pastor there says, quote, God is a tourist attraction. God wants to be attractive to us for us to enjoy ourselves, each other, and the world around us. Look, I don't know if those men stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ alone, but I will tell you this. Their ministry methods are wood, hay, and straw, and it's all going to burn up on the last day because that's anything but biblical ministry. Are you following me? Verse 14. If the work that anyone built on the foundation survives he will have a reward. The minister will have a reward. Faithful to the word, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Not salvation. He will suffer the loss of whatever this reward is, though he himself will be saved, but as though through fire. It's the picture of running out, running out of a burning wooden structure that the man has spent his entire ministry building, all of which will be revealed on that day as for what it was, and it's all burned up. It's like the three little pigs building a, what a house of sticks and a house of straw and a, and a house of, of brick to withstand the huff and the puff of the big bad wolf. On this day, it's not the huff and the puff of the big bad wolf, it's the fiery eyes of Jesus Christ that sees through everything. On display. Now, wood, hay, and straw, per se, it's not evil, per se. It's just worthless. It's material. It's methods and motives that equal zero on the day, that day. You're a Christian. The foundation's the same, so you're saved, but it will be revealed that all they spent their lives doing in ministry was building little piggy houses on the precious foundation of Jesus Christ. Burned up. Now, in a broader sense, as I said last week, um, every believer will no doubt stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. So from the pulpit to the pew, um, we will all be there, no doubt. Um, and this isn't some sixth grade re- a- award ceremony where everyone receives a-, a trophy. Amen? In our day, just play and you get a trophy. In my day, you had to win to get a trophy. I don't know what's happened. What has happened to us? Nothing of the sort. You know, 2 John, verse 8, look at it. To the church, to the church, watch yourselves that you do not lose what, you, what we have accomplished, writes John, but that you may receive a what? A full reward. Now, the context there of watch yourselves in 2 John, has to do with your association and support of false teachers. Your association with and support of false teachers. That's the context today. Applicable to Christians who in our day unwittingly support the work of false teachers, some of whom I've named over the weeks. Because they make me feel good. Watch yourselves, he said. You know, friends, the easiest way to get detoured for a believer and and, and lose the spiritual ground you've gained is to get involved with false doctrine. Don't do that, writes John. There's a a short 2 lined poem um, attributed to one CT stud. It goes like this. And it captures what Paul is saying in verses 10 through 15. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen? Okay, now remember, beloved, as we move along. Chapter 1, verse 10, through chapter 4 and verse 31, co- forms a complete unit. And along the way, Paul shifts gears And I said at the beginning, it's important that we do not lose the forest for the trees because Paul remains locked into the themes that he addressed back in chapter 1, having to do with schisms, division, jealousy, and, and strife, that partisan spirit that we've been talking about, and the Corinthians adopting worldly wisdom and the philosophy of men trying to mesh it with the gospel. Okay? Are you with me? Okay, good. Now, in first gear, he says, be sure you're standing on the correct foundation, Christ crucified. In second gear, he says, the materials used upon that foundation better square up with the foundation. Okay? And then he shifts into third gear in verses 16 and 17 because there's a third group of people that he wants to talk about Who don't build at all. They destroy. They destroy. They're church wreckers. Oh. Whoa. To church wreckers. It applies to those who might attack from the outside. And it applies to those who would dare attack from the inside. He's moving along. He just shifted into third gear. And with gravitas, Paul says to us, the church in the 21st century, what the church is and what God promises to do to any who would dare harm her. Are you still with me? All right. So verses 16 and 17, notice. Do you not know that you, again, the yous are plural, that you are the temple of the living God? That the spirit indwells you. So he's talking about the church collectively. Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you together? That is his, his very presence. Do you not know? Now, that phrase, do you not know, Paul will go on in this epistle and make use of nine more times. And be sure to know it's accusatory. It's derogatory. It's just the opposite of what he says uh, to the Thessalonians, something like, as you know. To the Thessalonians, he says, but you yourselves know. Here he says, do you not know? That's a rebuke. In other words, you should know this by now, but from all outward appearances it seems as though you don't <laughs> now when he says you are the temple th- this isn't some you know pious you know christian ease type of statement friends this is a profound statement because this statement is the consummation the finality The goal, the end, that is, to the theme of the dwelling place of God in all the Bible. Now, to fully grasp what Paul is saying, we must consider the trajectory of the Bible. So we're going to take a short little tour. Are you you willing? We're going to take a biblical tour. So, you know, put your seat tray tables up. Put your backs of your seats up. Strap in, because we're going to go for a little tour before we come in for this landing to the consummation of what is the temple of God. We go all the way back to Genesis 2. Now, you don't have to turn there, but remember, Adam and Eve dwelt together with God. That is, in the very presence of God in his garden temple. Temple the dwelling place of God, the Garden of Eden. They dwelt with God there. They lived with God there. They walked in the cool of the day with the Lord there. Present with them was the Lord. And then they sinned. And they tried to hide, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, they tried to hide from the presence of God. They're in hiding. Notice, Adam in his fallen state doesn't seek after God. Who seeks for whom? God seeks Adam. Adam, where art thou? He wasn't seeking information. This was to draw out of Adam repentance. Where are you? Men don't seek after God. They try to hide from the presence of God. You ran all your life trying to hide from the presence of God until God caught up with you, so to speak. And he spoke. He called you out. So God exiled them from this garden temple. They're banished from the temple garden. An act of judgment and also an act of mercy. Imagine having to eat from the tree of eternal life in a sinful state. Torture. So they're banished. He, he, he drives them out, and the driving out sends into motion God's preordained plan to restore relationship between himself and mankind. He sets the course right here. Now, eventually, God calls Abraham from out of a pagan nation. There are no Jews. God made them Jews. God calls Abraham, he makes him his own, through whom come the patriarchs. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, they turn into 12 tribes, they become a nation. God forms a nation, God forms a covenant people, anticipating the great work of God to dwell among his people once again. They spent 400 years in the incubator known as Egypt, multiplying, multiplying, they become this nation of people and God calls them out. He establishes laws with his covenant people. He establishes rituals with his covenant people, not with the world, but with his covenant people, and sacrifices that point to the one who's coming to dwell among his people. Now, God gives instruction to Moses very specific instructions, that is to construct a special place where God himself would provisionally dwell among his people by way of a, Exodus 40, tabernacle, tabernacle, to to be made with garden-like designs providing a link between heaven and earth. The Lord said, Moses, it is to be built strictly according to the pattern I show you. Remember that? We read this morning, just as God commanded Moses, just as God commanded Moses. Why? Well, quite simply because when we read Hebrews, we read the book of Hebrews, it's because that earthly tabernacle was reflecting heavenly stuff. A heavenly tabernacle. This is the way heaven is, and it's a reflection of that. And we read that all of those things served as a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. Look at it, Hebrews 8, verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the Mountain. In other words, Moses, there is no room. Moses, there is no room. Moses, there is no room for constructive creativity. You get that? Preacher, preacher, no room for constructive creativity. Everything... Be was to be done just as God Himself had prescribed, reminding us as when we were at Exodus, the presence of God among his people was indeed a great blessing to the people and for the people, but it was also an incredibly dangerous thing as well. Dare to enter into the Holy of Holies. In a way that's not prescribed by God. What did it equal? What did it equal? Death, dare to bring strange fire to the altar. Dare to do ministry your own way, sons of Aaron. And it equals death. Remember when they did that? God told Aaron, their father, do not weep for them, get their bodies out of here. Bury them, don't weep. They violated God's prescribed manner of worship, and he struck them dead. When Moses dedicated that tabernacle, the Shekinah glory fills that place we read, and during that time, it was portable. The tabernacle was portable. God led Israel by day, by way of a pillar of cloud, by night, a pillar of fire. When the pillar rose up, They pulled up stakes and they followed God wherever he led them through the wilderness for 40 years. Amen? Fast forward 500 years. King David wants to build God a temple. God didn't allow him to do so. Now, he could provide all the the materials for it, but Solomon, his son, Would build the temple. We read in 1 Kings chapter 8. It was extravagant. He dedicates that temple. God's glory. That is God's presence. Fills the place. And it chases all the priests out of there. It's overwhelming. The glory of God on display. They have to run out of there. So God moves from the garden. The garden temple. He moves to dwell amidst his people by way of a tabernacle. He moves to dwell amongst his people by way of a temple on a particular land. That is, his covenant people, the nation of Israel, his presence there was indeed real, but his presence there was also conditional. Conditional. Now, after years of disregarding God, their stubborn refusal to honor God, we read in the book of Ezekiel that the glory of the Lord, what? Departed from the temple. It departed from the temple. And for 400 years, there's no manifestation of the presence of God. All of that foreshadowed the greatest event in redemptive history and that is when in the fullness of time God took on flesh, came to this earth, the word became flesh, John 1 verse 14, and literally tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent of flesh among us on this fallen earth that's cursed by him to bear the curse that we deserve. Jesus, destroy this temple, he said in John 2, and in three days I will raise it up, referring to his body. Colossians chapter 2, in him, in Christ, is the fullness of deity. The deity of God dwells in bodily form, that is in Jesus Christ. This is interesting. When the glory of the Lord departed... From the temple in Ezekiel 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 23, we read that it rested on, across the Kidron Valley, on the Mount of Olives. A few hundred years later, the glory of God in a human body comes to this earth and we read that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives opposite a temple, the temple made with hands and he said this in Mark 13, most assuredly I say to you, with regard to that edifice, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be torn down. Talking about what would happen in 70 A.D., And it came to pass. Amen? So never again is there a need for a temple made with hands. For Jesus is the very fulfillment of the dwelling place of God among men. Amen? Nevertheless, the glory of God in a human body, the temple of the living God, his ministry, would be very temporary. Because he was crucified. Dead. Buried. Raised again, just as the Old Testament scriptures foretold, he ascended 40 days later to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he received a kingdom, we read in Daniel. All power and authority is his, and yet God promised, Jesus promised his disciples, that he would send his Holy Spirit. Are you with me? So that... His people would now be the new dwelling place of God. Jesus, the ultimate dwelling place of God, is now being lived out through his living temple. The body, the church, the temple of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Remember Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well? High noon, John 4. He said, woman, believe me, look at it. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that is Mount garrison nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Who's the seeker there? Who's the seeker? God. He seeks his people out. So that is to say there is no longer a sacred geographical space where God dwells because now the people of God in Christ are the sacred space in which he dwells. That's you. No longer is God's presence tied to a building or some particular geographical space. God is present with his people Wherever and whenever they gather together, you are God's temple, plural. Those photos in the lobby of y'all, you know those black and white photos? That's the temple of God. You're not looking forward to some building, are you? You're not looking forward to some man made edifice somewhere, are you? In some particular part of the world, are you? This is the consummation of all that. It's finished. Christ is come. Now you are the temple of the living God. That temple, that edifice has been superseded. It's obsolete. You're the temple of God. And how does that temple grow? By way of the ministry of the word of God properly taught to those living stones. This is Paul's point. This is Paul's argument you build on that foundation, the materials better be right. You're all divided, you're divisive, factions have arisen among you, I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy, do you not know you are the temple of God? Now we see an escalation in the passage, okay, back to the text. We see an escalation in the passage. In verses 8 through 15, his eye is on those who impact the church. His last line reads, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved as through what? Fire. Here in verse 17, anyone who dares to mess with the temple of God they are in deep woods deep woods serious trouble dare to destroy his temple God will destroy you this is the lex talionis the eye for an eye kind of judgment you do this God does that you destroy this try to destroy this God destroys you Remember what Jesus said? Most assuredly, I say to you, anyone who would dare cause one of these little ones, these believers who trust in me, anyone who would dare cause them to stumble, it would be better if a millstone, that is a donkey stone, donkey millstone, which weighed 300 pounds, it would be better for him if that millstone were tied around his neck and you chucked him into the sea than to cause my people to stumble. So why is the punishment so severe, beloved? Because of the value of God's temple. This is his holy place, his people, his church. Not not an edifice where people gather, but a community of people itself. This is what God values. They are redeemed by the blood of Christ. You are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, the very apple of his eye. Warning to anyone who would dare poke God in the eye. So the threat is real destruction. Primary context, heretics. Heretics. False teachers who ruin Christians' lives by their false teaching. They carry a Bible. They wave it in the air all day long. All it is is a prop to them because they take it and they take text out of context, twist it, contort it to mean anything they want it to mean. As Ty spoke of earlier. And they mislead God's people rather than explaining it carefully and contextually for the sake of God's people and the glory of his name. They refuse to preach the gospel. That is, they refuse to to teach on divine justice. They'll never preach on hell. You can't preach on glory in heaven unless you preach on hell. You can't preach on forgiveness and justification without preaching on the justice and holy wrath of God. Amen? That's what they do. They refuse. These are the words, those men who refuse to do such, of those Old Testament prophets who would preach peace, peace, when there is no peace. Peace. Those are the words, or the lack thereof, of the physician who refuses to diagnose a fatal illness. Remember what Jesus said about the great physician? He is the great physician. And he said this, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, what's Jesus' point there? The point is that there are none who are righteous. Only those who think they are. That's the context. (laughs) I've come for those who will come to a place of realizing that they're poor in spirit. That there's nothing they can do before God to earn their way. I come to heal them. You know, a lot of guys today are worried about making congregants feel uncomfortable when they come. You know, they're guilty. They feel guilty enough when they come. I could quote one guy Dentine, smile, shiny hair, um, uh, most popular pastor in America. They're already guilty. I don't want to build upon that. Look, if coming here makes you feel terrible about yourself and causes you to look solely to Christ for your identity, for your justification... For your sanctification, for your certain glorification, for the forgiveness of sins, righteousness in Christ, then our goal has been met. I'm glad you feel terrible about yourself. If you're here this morning, if you're terrible about yourself and you don't have any hope whatsoever, repent of your sins, come to Christ, rest on him, the foundation of saving grace and you too shall be saved. You'll feel real good all right, not about yourself but about him and what he's accomplished on your behalf. Crushed by the Father in your place, condemned he stood, declaring you're righteous in your position by way of his resurrection. And you too shall be saved. Come and believe. What did Paul warn the Ephesian elders? When I depart from here, after my departure, savage wolves will come, not what? Not what? Not sparing the flock. They'll come from the outside, and worse than that, some of them them will rise up from among you and lead many astray. The greatest enemy of the church are those who stealthily work from the inside in the name of Jesus with false doctrine. They are church wreckers. They're manipulative, oppressive, greedy leaders. They use tactics to to sway people's emotions, creating a false sense of wonder, false miracles. They, They create the mystical, and whenever their methods are exposed, they threaten with these words, don't you dare touch the Lord's anointed. You ever hear that? The nephew of the false teacher, Benny Hinn, who is now a true gospel preacher of Jesus Christ, you can read the interview in the September next month's issue of Table Talk magazine. Benny Hinn's nephew, who worked with him, says this in the article. If something like false prophecy was grossly inaccurate or the behavior of one of our leaders was perversely sinful, you said nothing. Why? Because we were always taught to never touch the Lord's anointed. And that meant no questions and no criticism. End of quote. Now, this warning, verses 16 and 17, it applies not only to recognize leaders within the church, because Paul uses here, notice, inclusive language. He does not say that if any so-called builder destroys this temple, he says if anyone destroys this temple. If any man works to destroy God's church, God will destroy him or her, ladies. Any church wrecker females in the house today? Now, Paul may be considering here in this epistle the damage that's being done to God's temple, that is the Lord Jesus Christ's church by the Corinthians themselves. Why? They were undermining the very message that brought them to life, Jesus Christ and him crucified alone. That's why. Which means divisive, contentious congregants can also be church wreckers. Chapter 1, verse 11, chapter 3, verse 3. Congregants who gossip. Congregants who constantly sow discord among the brethren, creating division. They sit in churches, combative on the inside, filled with strife. They go home from here and they unleash criticism. They eat the pastor for lunch. They sometimes eat the people for lunch, from the pulpit to the pew. Divisive, contentious congregants can be church records. All their children ever hear out of their mouths is cuts in criticism of what God cherishes, his church. Don't do that in front of your children, ladies and gentlemen, if you do that. Don't do that. God loves his church. The church that preaches the gospel, he cherishes. Those who don't preach the gospel, it's not a church. You can call yourself a church, but you're not a church. See how serious this is, beloved? Also, we read here that the arrogant and boastful also work to destroy the church. Chapter 1, verse 29, 321, 46 and 7, 418 and 19. They wouldn't serve to save their own neck, but they sit in judgment of everyone else who does. You know what the great thing about preaching texts like this is? That we don't have that problem here. That's what's great about it. Amen is right. Say it again, sister. We don't have that problem here. If we do, it's rare. They eventually fizzle out. They'll they'll come for a while. They'll They'll sit somewhere in here, planted. They'll say things to me I don't let you know, but I know that this thing means this, and that leads to danger if they don't repent, and they know we're not going to play, we're not going to mess around, so eventually they leave, which is a what kind of thing? That's a good thing. Good thing. Men, consider your wives. Actually, I take that back. I'll use myself as an example. My wife is a better wife than I am a husband whose presence I enjoy, (laughs) even during football season. Now, let me say this, if you want to quickly get my attention, dare say something foul about her, let alone raise a, tan, a hand toward her, and I would likely react swiftly, without pause, without pondering, I'd have a carnal moment, and your teeth would be smiling at you from across the street. <laughs> if you did that and you were a male, if you did that and you're female, I wouldn't do that to you, I'd get dawned to do it. <laughs> that was all for the sake of illustration. <laughs> Sorry, Don. All that to say, imagine Jesus, an infinitely superior husband than his church is a bride, for whom he shed his blood. How do you suppose he feels when she is the topic of your slander, gossip, ridicule, and rage? All that to say... Corinthians, to insist on worldly, divisive, combative patterns of behavior towards this temple, that's who you are, the temple, Corinth, in the end will demonstrate you're not building on the foundation at all. You're not even on it. You're a church wrecker. And God will wreck you. You see the warning. So the dominant truth of verses 16 and 17 is that God dwells not merely among his people, but today through the consummation of our Lord Jesus Christ within his redeemed people. He is among us and he is within us. You are his temple, beloved. Amen. The temple of the living God. So therefore, as Jesus said, Not only are we his temple, we are his body, we are also his disciples. And Jesus said this about his disciples, to close. By this shall the world know that you are my disciples, by your love for the world? The lost? No, we want to love the lost enough to tell them the truth, but he says, look, the world will know you, that you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another, Manifest here in a healthy way at Pacific Hope Church. And I praise God for you every day. Evidence that you are a follower of Christ. That you are building on the foundation which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Loving what he loves. That is where his presence dwells. It resides right here within his people. The presence of God. Delicious word as Gordon Fee says. Delicious word, presence. So because God loves his church, his temple, so do you. Amen? And so should we. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy. Next time, Lord willing, in Christ, all things, beloved, all things are yours. Because you're the temple, you are in Christ. All things are yours. Amen? Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for these sober warnings, these wonderful reminders. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Christ crucified. Thank you for the ministry of the word, and thank you that the word sanctifies those who are yours, the temple, the people, the disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in thanks for the glory of his name. Amen.